And well, if you've got your Bibles there, please do open them at Acts chapter 6. And Martin Bishop is going to come to read to us. And then Mark's going to come and preach. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and they said, well, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, Stephen, a man of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose from members of the synagogue and of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit gave to Stephen as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard this Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that this, his face was like the face of an angel. And may the same Holy Spirit that inspired the early church inspire our hearts as we hear and inspire Mark's words as he comes to talk to us. Amen. Thanks Martin very much and good morning everyone. It's great to see you here this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, do, do keep that open. We're going to return to that passage. Um, but I'd like us just to pray and focus on verse 7. It's a verse that comes right in the middle of that passage. Um, so the word of God spread. Um, so let's pray that that would be true in our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that we've been learning together as a church family through this amazing book of Acts. As we see your early church established and move forward, growing to the glory of your name. And I pray this morning that you would show each of us how we can play our part in the word of God spreading in this place and the places in which we live. Amen. 
A couple, a couple of weeks ago in the morning, um, I guess the summary of the morning sermon was really a challenge. It was quite a, a difficult passage, wasn't it? Really challenging, thinking about what it would look like for us as a church to be um, of one heart and of one mind, um, sharing all that we have to be a blessing um, to those around us. Last week, the aim was really uh, to encourage us all. Um, that we're part of something that God is doing and that it's mission unstoppable. Next week, Neil's going to take the series on and we're looking at an amazing chapter, chapter 7 of Acts, where um, we'll be really inspired, I hope, by an amazing man who was fearless in the strength that God gave him. And he proclaimed an amazing message uh, and the gospel continues spreading. Uh, but today we're going to be mega, mega practical. Uh, it's kind of practical Sunday because tonight um, Nathan's going to take the series on in, in the book of James. And we're going to be thinking about what it means to not just believe the gospel, but to put it into practice. Um, so today is kind of practical Sunday. Uh, make no apology for that. I remember saying last week that being a Christian is difficult. And if anyone ever tells you otherwise, they're probably not speaking the truth. Uh, and I also think made the point that being a church is difficult. There's all sorts of challenges that we'll always face as a church. So I really want to speak into some of them and in a very practical way, perhaps try and address some of the specific issues that we might be dealing with as a church today and to use this passage to really help us with some of the things that we're working through as a church together. Now, if you look back through the book of Acts, just focus on chapter 4, 5, and then this chapter, chapter 6. What we see in these chapters are different examples of the early church facing persecution. So do you remember chapter 4? The church was facing persecution from religious leaders who were trying to shut down the apostles and the mission that they had come to proclaim. So that was external persecution. You get to chapter 5, and it was internal persecution, internal disruption. Do you remember the, the pair Ananias and Sapphira? And they had been deceptive. They'd held back and then made it look to the church that they were being more generous than they were. And they faced a very real judgment of God. So we had external persecution, internal struggles. And this week in chapter 6, we're really thinking about internal organizational issues. Kind of how, how as a church do we structure ourselves and cope as we grow? And how does this help or hinder the gospel going out? So come with me to uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Notice it says right at the beginning there, in those days. Now don't just breeze through that, oh, in those days, as if it was kind of Monday, Tuesday. What what is in those days? Go back to the end of chapter 5, verse 42. And what were those days that he's referring to? Do you remember it? Day after day, chapter 5, verse 42, the apostles never stopped proclaiming the word of God. So these are the days we're talking about, the days where the word of God is going forth as we've already learned this morning, as we've been singing about. But it was in these days, notice what it says in verse 1, the numbers of disciples was increasing, and the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of bread. Now what's all that about? We know from chapter 2 and chapter 4, don't we, that the early church were pulling together and they were sharing all that they had. If you were a widow in the first century, you'd be unbelievably vulnerable. So here the church have gathered together to look after and bless those who need protection. And here the example is widows. But in the church, you've got two groups of people. You've got the Hellenistic Jews. Uh, Hellenism is just another word for Greek. So these are Greek-speaking Jews who primarily live outside of Israel and Palestine. And then you've got Hebraic Jews, Hebrew Jews, 
they spoke Aramaic as their primary language and in the temple um, and as they were learning together the spoken language was Hebrew so you've got these two different groups who speak different languages and come from very different cultures there were more Hebraic Jews than there were Hellenistic Greek Jews and the Greek Jews were saying you lot aren't looking after our lot there's more of you but you're overlooking our widows who are in desperate need what are you going to do about it? But I want us to focus on that word, complained. Uh, This wasn't just a language problem, this wasn't just a cultural problem. Uh, This word, complained, is actually a very, very serious word. It's the same word that's used in the book of Numbers, when God's people are walking around the desert, and we read time and time again, they grumbled. And if you know anything about what was going on in the life of God's people in the desert, it was a really bad problem. So here, where the writer deliberately uses the same word, he's casting their minds back, saying, remember what happened when you grumbled. Grumbling in church, as a family of God, is a very, very dangerous thing. Just as a couple of examples. Here are three examples from the New Testament. Don't need to read the whole verses, but from 1 Corinthians 10, Philippians 2, and 1 Peter 4, time and time again, we're reminded in the scriptures of the danger of grumbling. Do not grumble. Do everything without grumbling. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why is this grumbling? Why is this such a big threat to a church? Why is it so dangerous? In many ways, grumbling can threaten the unity of a church, can't it? It can be divisive. It can stop us pulling together and pulling in the same direction. But more than that, what can happen is when we start grumbling as a church... We can start looking inward at all the problems that the grumbling is associated with, often very legitimate problems, but all of our hearts, all of our minds come in on ourselves, in on our church, and we spend all of our time figuring out problems in here, which are really important. But what does that stop us doing? It stops us lifting our eyes and looking out at the big world and the mission that we're involved in as a church. It's not that the internal issues are not issues, But if they become the issue for the church, and they can very easily do that, then we're not involved in the mission of God, which he's called us to. And notice a final little observation. Um, What does all this stem from? Where's the grumbling stem from? You can answer that if you want. Someone shout out. Where's it stem from? And don't say it stems from the the widows not being looked after. Actually, what does it stem from? Go back to the beginning of verse 1. What does it actually stem from? It's a good thing. Growth. The amazing thing here is the problem the church is facing is a problem associated with growth in more people becoming Christians. That's a good thing. It's a really good thing, but it creates problems in a church. And that's what we're going to wrestle with this morning. Um, let's try, I'll try and ground this with some of the issues in our church at the moment, perhaps. Um, we are grappling with big questions about the future of our church and what that's going to look like going forward. We have big questions to answer about how do we use the money that we have and where should the focus of our use of our money be. We've talked recently about wanting to take some responsibilities as a church to train the next generation of gospel workers, to pour money and time and resources into people and then send them on. And that's both costly and difficult for a church to engage with. Um, people have shared very legitimately uh, challenges with a growing church. These are very legitimate concerns. Some people say, I love a church that's so welcoming and there's so many children racing around after church and it creates lots of fun, it's a great environment for them. And that's a good thing. 
But people legitimately can say, but it's difficult, church is noisy now. Some people say, and this is very legitimate as well, I don't know everyone anymore, and I always used to know everyone in the church, and that's hard. Of course it's hard. But as a church grows, it becomes less easy to know everyone, perhaps in the way that we once did. And then you've got this right desire as a church to be focusing on growth and focusing on outreach, but that cannot be done to the detriment of caring about people within the church. Pastoral care really matters. It really matters. Both matter, and they have to be held together. So how do we do that? So if I was to retranslate Acts um, chapter 6, verse 1 into 21st century language here, we might read something like this. At LCBC in 2016-17, when the number of disciples was increasing, that's a good thing, we experienced difficulties. And I think in many ways as a church, we are experiencing some of those difficulties of growth. And a new building has helped facilitate growth, but it brings with it all sorts of issues. So the first thing which I've already sort of introduced really, the gospel growth does bring challenges to a church. We need to acknowledge that. But we must accept it as a church and not grumble if it's difficult for us. That's really, really important. Second thing we're going to look at though, and this is a really great thing, gospel growth brings opportunity and we've got to be smart in how we respond. Come down to verse 2 of our passage. It starts there with the word so. Don't again jump over that word, that's a very significant word. It's saying that the apostles made a very deliberate decision to do something about the problem. So, there's a problem, so we're going to do something about it. So there's an intentionality here. And it says, the twelve, the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Now we've got to be really careful not to misunderstand this, okay? The apostles are not saying that waiting on tables and caring for these widows is not a really, really important thing. And nor are they saying that proclaiming the gospel in one sense is any more important than the legitimate concerns of caring for things within the church. They're not saying that. It's not a derogatory term where the apostles are saying, I'm going to preach the gospel and you lot can just wait on tables. It's not like that at all. These things are both really, really important and they both really, really matter to the church. You hopefully would have picked up one of these last week. If you haven't, there'll be some on the door on the way out. This is a booklet that we put together from time to time with all the different opportunities currently to serve in the church. There's loads of things in here. And there's very public things. There's very private things. There are big jobs. There are little jobs. But everything in here really, really matters. And whatever you do to serve the church, whether it's a really big thing or a very small thing, it really, really matters. And even if you're in a place where... You're not as able to be practically involved in serving as you would like or perhaps once were. Being a part of the church by being here and praying at home when you're able to, those things are hugely important to the church. Hugely important. They're not lesser ministries. They're not less significant ministries. But I want you to notice something. Just have a look at the words on the screen. I want you to look at the words that are underlined in white. There's two, two sets of words. Do you notice that in both, both those sentences there, it's all about the number of disciples growing. Then have a look at the words in yellow. What is it that causes the number of disciples to grow? It's proclamation of the word of God. If I put out coffee cups 
on a Sunday, that in itself is not going to bring someone to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't, because people come to faith in Jesus Christ by hearing the gospel. But putting out coffee cups on a Sunday morning is absolutely vital to help the word of God go forth. Because it's all part of this church being a welcoming place where people feel valued. And actually we're living out the gospel that we're proclaiming. It's not that one is less important than the other, but one leads to gospel growth. The other is helping to facilitate it. But we need to understand the distinction. No one came to faith because of a coffee cup. But plenty of people could testify to a coffee cup in their testimony of how they came to faith, if that makes sense. Serving coffee matters. But it never made somebody a Christian. What are the apostles saying? They're saying we need to be devoted to prayer and ministry of the word. Because otherwise gospel growth in the church will be slowed. So the apostles, what they're really saying is we need to keep... We're saying the main thing is that we keep the main thing the main thing for us. The main thing is that we keep the main thing the main thing. And so in many ways, the decisions that they're having to make in church, and I think we have to make in church all the time, is not so much between good and bad, but between good and best. How do we use the time that we have that's limited and the gifts that we have? How do we use that best to serve God? I'm just going to read a little quote from uh, uh, an older man, so old he's not alive anymore. Um, he was a bishop of Liverpool. I quote from him quite often because I find him very useful. A guy called J.C. Ryle. But this is what he says about focusing on what you are good at to help in the mission of God. Uh, a zealous person in religion is preeminently a person of one thing. It's not enough to say that they, you are earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. They only see one thing. The zealous person only cares about one thing. They only live for one thing. They're only swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether they live, whether they die, whether they enjoy health or sickness, whether they're rich or they're poor, whether they please mankind or give offence, whether they're wise or whether they're foolish, whether they get the blame or they get the praise, whether honour or shame, for all this the zealous person cares nothing at all. Instead, they burn for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and advance God's glory. So for you to think about your own life, and and we were challenged earlier with our little cards I'm hoping we're going to respond to today. I just want to ask you a question. What is your one thing? Sure, we're involved in lots of things, but what's the one thing that you can do to add value to the church? To serve this church? For the apostles, it was making sure they didn't get distracted with practical stuff that was really, really important, but they used their gifts of proclaiming the gospel and focused on that and on prayer. For you, it might be very different. But whatever it is, you need to think, what is the one thing that I can contribute to helping the gospel go forth here? Because if the gospel is going to grow, it will bring opportunity, but we need to be smart in how we respond. Come to verse 3. Notice what it says there. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. This pleased the whole group. Just notice a few things in the flow there. Notice verse 2, it starts with leadership initiative. 
Do you remember the word so that I made a lot about earlier? There's a problem. So there's leadership initiative. We're going to do something about this. Notice too, there's congregational ownership. Verse 3. The church comes together to work out how do we address this problem? It's a good problem to have, but how are we going to cope with it? Notice verse 5, there's a creation of teams. People who've got different gifts in different ways come together, find their fit in the jigsaw, and then together they serve. And notice too, there's empowering in verse 6. The apostles handed over responsibility so they could focus on what they should be doing and other people focus on what they should be doing. I think this has got all sorts of um, implications for us as a church. I think it has a very real implication for the eldership in the church. And we're very aware of this. We need to be focusing on spiritual oversight. Not getting bogged down in all the detail of practicality. Because there are people who are more able and able to do those things. And we need to really focus on giving spiritual direction in a church. What the apostles had to focus on. Prayer and ministry of the word. I think with this area of pastoral care, as a church gets bigger, it gets much, much harder for pastoral care to be done by a few. In a very small church, the way historically it works is the pastor does loads and loads of visiting. That's hugely important, and we try and do as much visiting as we can. But just looking at numbers, it's impossible for pastors to visit everyone all the time. There's just too many people. But it doesn't need to be just pastors who are visiting people. And so maybe one of the implications for us as a church is how do we do home groups? If you're a home group leader, you have an absolutely vital role in this church. Because so much pastoral care can be done and facilitated through smaller groups. Where a big church is broken down into smaller groups and we look after each other. And we care for people's spiritual needs and practical needs and we pray for each other. And sure, there are certain times where there's a very chronic issue or an acute issue and you might need some more help. But generally speaking, we all look after each other. And home groups already do a brilliant job of that. And I really want to encourage you as a home group to continue thinking, how do we in our smaller group support and equip each other? Because it's just impossible for one or two to do that now. We're just too big. Notice as well that in verse 3 there... Uh, brothers and sisters choose seven men from among you that's not really talking about ordination to an office it's part of the reason why uh, a year or so ago we talked about wanting to um, speak less of the word deacon which is really speaking of a, a select group in the church that do a particular thing because we recognize there are loads of ministry leaders in the church serving in all sorts of ways and we're committed to male oversight as eldership but what we really want to encourage is men and women with leadership gifts all the way through the church serving and taking responsibility for different ministries that's hugely important because there's so many gifts as i look out there we need to be releasing these gifts in all of us well there's enough there but let's just think about how as gospel uh, as the gospel grows it will bring opportunity but we do need to think about how we respond and this is difficult and uh, like growing it's painful and we need to keep working through this without grumbling and with a real spirit of unity together. Notice the third thing here. This is quite short, but just want to point out one little detail. Gospel growth does require skillful people to step up. That's why the ministry cards are brilliant, because if you think you've got a gift that can be used, please tell us. But people who step up to serve in a church must never do so at the detriment of character. Do you see verse 3? Choose seven from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom 
And that little phrase there, known to be, is literally um, attested to or of good repute. So it's not talking about people who are just godly, and we hope and pray that we'll all be growing in godliness. It's talking about people too who have a character that means they can work in teams. Because as a big church, we have to work in teams. We have to be wise in the way that we relate to other people. Here's something I noticed this week. You go back to Luke's gospel. Uh, Acts was written by Luke. Luke was written by Luke. It's two books written by the same guy. But in his first book, Luke, he, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And twice he was saying to his disciples, you're going to face persecution and difficulty. And there are two things I really want to encourage in you and pray for you. Do you notice what they are? One is the Holy Spirit and the other is wisdom. So it should be no surprise when we get to the book of Acts and here where people are called out. The the particular thing that Luke draws attention to is the very thing that Jesus himself told his disciples. We need people who are full of the Spirit and we need people who are wise. And so as we serve, we need to be praying for each other that we would increasingly be more full of God's Spirit and that we would be wise as we seek to serve. And just the last thing we'll look at together. I think you might be seeing this phrase a number of times through the book of Acts. I hope you're not getting bored of it. Mission unstoppable. That's what Acts is all about. I hope you're seeing the energy in the book, the excitement. That is what this book is about. And as a church, we're still part of the same mission that is carrying on until Christ returns. But notice verse 7. When we start getting some of these practical things in place, and they are very practical, I know that. God's mission will be unstoppable. Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. There were about 18,000 priests serving in the temple in Jerusalem and they worked on kind of two-week shifts where they served for two weeks and then had a break and then they rotated. Most of the priests were pretty poor. If you were part of the high priest family, you'd live in a nice home in the city and you'd have a lot of money. But most of the priests didn't have very much. So who would be providing for the priests? Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. Perhaps in part the Christians who pulled their resources together and gave to support these people who didn't have very much. Now imagine if you were a priest and there were Christians coming and supporting you and serving you and loving you living out the gospel in a really practical way, that would have a massive impact on you. And perhaps, we don't know this, perhaps some of the priests who we read of here who became obedient to the faith, perhaps some of them were from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, who in chapter 4 were persecuting the church. Maybe God in his goodness took people who were persecuting these Christians and transformed their hearts and they were added to the number. We don't know, but it's highly likely But the thing that's really amazing in these chapters is we saw at the beginning there was every opportunity for grumbling to take root in the church. But instead of grumbling spreading, what spread instead, verse 7? The word of God. Because the church got organized and the church focused on what they needed to focus on. And this is really significant because in chapter 6, as we're introduced to Stephen and as we look on next week into chapter 7, the extraordinary thing with with Stephen is that this is the time in the book of Acts where the gospel begins to spread from Jerusalem. I'm sure you'll know the really big verse, chapter 1, verse 8 of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. 
Everything up to now in Acts has been in Jerusalem. But with Stephen, the gospel is going to start spreading into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what's amazing is it's not just the gospel that is spreading. It's also God is using different people to spread it. And here he gets hold of Stephen and Stephen does something amazing in the power of God's spirit. The gospel is not just for all people. It begins to be spread by all people and makes a big difference in the life of the church. To encourage us as we finish, I just want you to look at two pairs of verses. Come to verse 9. We're going to look at um, verse 9 here. In spite of all this organization, in spite of all that the church did to try and reorganize themselves to cope with the growth that they were experiencing, notice what happened. Opposition arose. No surprise, it's the book of Acts. There's always opposition when the gospel is proclaimed. But, where does it come from? Members of the synagogue of the freedmen. That's kind of ex-Roman prisoners. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria. That's North Africa. As well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. That's Turkey. Opposition arose from these people who began to argue with Stephen. Now look at verse 11. They secretly persuaded some man saying, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And finally, verse 13, they produced false witnesses. So we've seen a whole bit of chapter, the chapter, which is talking about organizing the church and using our gifts and playing to our strengths, all really good things. But in spite of all that, there'll still be difficulties in the church. There'll still be opposition. And we see it here. But you hold this opposition in one hand. Look at what we get in the other hand. Verse 10, they could not stand up against Stephen's wisdom, the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. It doesn't matter how big the opposition is. When God's Spirit is upon his church, it does its work and the gospel continues to be unstoppable. And look at verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's an expression that really speaks of a person who is close to God and reflecting the glory of God. It's really an expression of a, a true servant of God. So we have this chapter. It's mega practical. How do we reorganize ourselves? How do we focus on what we're meant to be doing? What is the main thing that God wants you to be doing to contribute to the mission of God? But in spite of all of that, which is really, really important, we will continue to face difficulties as a church. We'll continue to face opposition as a church. But we can be encouraged that the gospel will always keep on spreading if God's spirit is in what we're doing. So I just want to recap those things we've got on the screen there. Yes, the gospel growth brings challenges, but we've got to accept it and not grumble. Amazingly, though, gospel growth brings opportunity. But we've got to be smart in how we respond and keep being smart because the, the, the issues that we face will change. Gospel growth requires skillful people to step up. That's you and me but never to the detriment of character. And amazingly, God's mission is unstoppable, so you and I can be encouraged. I just want to say a, a big thank you to the church for all of you who in different ways contribute to serving in the life of this church. Every single one of you matters, particularly those of you who are sitting there going, but what I do doesn't really matter. You're the ones who matter the most. You need to be encouraged. Thank you for all that you do. 
And let's as a church be encouraged to use the gifts that we've got and to respond to this missionary gift day. Because the gifts that God has given us, we use to be a blessing to those around us and it's always in response to the gospel. I know I haven't spoken a huge amount today about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, but I don't apologize for that. Not because it's not important, but because everything we see in Acts chapter 6 flows out of hearts that have been transformed by the grace of God. And we're going to see that particularly strongly next week when Stephen preaches an amazing sermon where he is faithful to God's word. So thank you for all that you do. And let's be encouraged together that as we use our gifts together, we can go forward and the church here will continue to grow and we will indeed see lives changed by Christ. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Amen.